Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Last time we were in Genesis, Joseph had been sold by his brothers into Egypt. He was purchased by Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, and given responsibility over all of Potiphar's household. But he was imprisoned after being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Even in prison, however, Potiphar made Joseph steward over all the other prisoners. Then one day, the Pharaoh had some troubling dreams, and Joseph was summoned to interpret those dreams. Joseph proceeded to say that God was telling Pharaoh that there would be seven years of plentiful harvests, followed by seven years of extreme famine. So the Pharaoh made Joseph second in command only to Pharaoh himself and gave him responsibility to store up grain during the years of plenty as reserves for the years of famine. Things turned out exactly as Joseph said. During seven years of plenty, Joseph set aside an enormous amount of grain. And then the famine struck, and it was severe, not just over Egypt, but over the whole Mediterranean world. And that brings us up to today. Let's begin by reading chapter 42, verses 1 to 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Joseph did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with them, or with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and minds this morning through the reading and preaching of your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now remember, Jacob is quite wealthy, but all his wealth doesn't do him much good if there's no food in the land. When he says in verse 1, why do you just keep looking at each other? <clears throat> that may be another way of saying why are you just sitting around doing nothing when there's grain in Egypt? Go get some. These are all grown men, after all. Isn't there anyone among Jacob's sons who can take some initiative and show some leadership? There will be, but apparently not yet. So Jacob tells 10 of his sons to go to Egypt. But verse 4 says Jacob didn't send Benjamin because he was afraid something bad would happen to him. Jacob doesn't seem too concerned about the other ten brothers. Joseph and Benjamin were the only two sons born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, and he loved them more than all the rest. Jacob's favoritism was shining through loud and clear. On the other hand, when Jacob sent Joseph out with his brothers, Joseph didn't come back. I wonder if Jacob began to have questions about what really happened to Joseph. He's not about to take any chances with Benjamin. Verse 6 says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Remember Joseph's dreams? God had shown him that his brothers would one day bow down to him. 
And that is just what they were doing, although they didn't realize they were bowing to Joseph yet. Verse 7 says that as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized him. Now, we learned in chapter 41 that Joseph had set up storage sites in numerous towns throughout Egypt. And my guess is that this location was a border town and that Joseph personally supervised the grain to foreigners. When he saw his brothers come in, he recognized them. Now, let's use some sanctified imagination and tried to imagine what it might have, might, might have gone through Joseph's mind. Joseph was overseeing the sale of grain to foreigners when ten familiar faces come in. It can't be, can it? It can. Those guys are my brothers. I've got to find out if my father is still alive after all these years. But wait, my brothers hated me so much they sold me into slavery, and the last thing they might want is for my father to see me again. Then Dad would know what they did to me, and their crime would be exposed. Are my brothers still the same thugs they were 20 years ago? I need to be careful about how I deal with this situation. So continuing in verses 7 to 9, Joseph pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Now this raises the question, how is it that Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him? The answer is that it had been 20 years since the brothers had seen Joseph. They had gotten a little older, but not much more had changed for them. Joseph, on the other hand, now appeared for all the world like an Egyptian. He was clean-shaven, dressed in Egyptian royal clothing, spoke to the brothers through a translator, even had an Egyptian name. Even if they thought he looked familiar, Joseph was the last person they expected to see as a ruler in Egypt. So Joseph spoke harshly to them and accused them of being spies. They responded in verses 10 and 11. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Their claim to be honest men is mentioned five times in this story, which means it is significant. In other words, their claim to be honest is a big part of the story. But honest men? Seriously? Do honest men sell their own brother into slavery? Did these honest men go back and tell their father what really happened to Joseph? Joseph knew they were not spies, of course, but he also knew they were not honest men, at least not when he knew them last. Nevertheless, the brothers strongly assert their innocence. But in verses 14 to 17, Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies. and This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. And if you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. The plan here is to keep nine of the brothers in prison while sending one back. 
But we'll soon see that Joseph changes his mind, keeping only one of the brothers in prison while sending the other nine back. Maybe when Joseph had time to think about it, he realized that one brother would have difficulty bringing back enough grain for all of their families. Or maybe he thought that one brother might simply refuse to come back, whereas there would be more hope that at least some of the nine would return with Benjamin. Whatever the case, verses 18 to 20 say, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. So Joseph is going to give them enough grain to last for a while anyway. But they want to be saved from starvation. They're going to have to bring their brother back to Joseph. Since Joseph had been speaking through an interpreter, the brothers didn't think he could understand. So they spoke to each other in Hebrew. In verses 21 and 22, they say, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give accounting for his blood. But no one likes and I told you so. And that's what Reuben is doing. This may be Reuben's way of suggesting that whoever they chose to stay behind in Egypt, it should not be him. After all, he was the only one who stood up for Joseph. Remember, Reuben was the oldest. He was the leader. But rather than taking leadership and saying the buck stops here, Reuben may be passing the buck. If so, once again, Reuben is proving himself unworthy of leadership. As we will see, Judah, the fourthborn, will emerge as the real leader in this family. Meanwhile, Joseph understood every word they said. And in verse 24, he had to turn away to wipe the tears from his eyes before having Simeon bound. But out of ten brothers, why keep Simeon? Maybe Reuben's passing the buck worked. Simeon was the next oldest brother, so he would have to stay. So why did Joseph turn away in tears? The text doesn't tell us, but I'd like to think it was because this was the first indication Joseph had that his brothers may have been sorry for what they did to him. Whatever the reason, the tears show that Joseph was not being hateful or vindictive toward his brothers. He was just testing their honesty. Verses 25 and 26 say, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. So all the money or silver they had paid for the grain was put back in the sacks along with the grain. In other words, they had really paid nothing at all for that grain. They didn't realize this, of course, until they stopped for the night. Then, verses 27 and 28 say, At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sacks to get food for his donkey. He saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank. And they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? 
You see, Joseph's brothers are viewing all this as God's punishment for what they did to Joseph. But that's not how Joseph views it. In coming weeks, Joseph is going to tell them that what Joseph is going to tell them what God has done to them, and it's nothing like they imagined. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. Anyway, they finally get home and tell Jacob what happened. Verses 33 and 34 repeat the story of what happened again. And it sounds very repetitious to us, but the author Moses does this for a reason. He is emphasizing that Joseph is testing the brother's honesty. Now, to be sure, Joseph is also setting things up to be able to see Benjamin and his father again, but he also wants to know if his brothers can now be trusted. Are they truly honest men as they claim? Things go from bad to worse for the brothers, however. In verse 35, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sacks was his, was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money uh, pouches, they were frightened. As far as the brothers know, Joseph is just testing their honesty to prove they're not spies. If they bring Benjamin back, Joseph will take that as evidence that they're honest and not spies. But Joseph already knows they're not spies. Joseph is really testing their honesty by putting all their money back in their grain sacks. Now imagine that you had just spent a few hundred dollars in cash for some groceries at Walmart. When you get back home, you find all of your cash in the grocery sacks. If you were honest, you'd bring the money back to the store. If Joseph's brothers are as honest as they claim, they will return the money too. But if the Egyptians kept track of their sales, they may know that the money for the brothers' grain is missing. So even if they bring Benjamin back, this could undermine their claim to honesty, and they have to wonder whether they'll be charged as spies anyway. In fact, will the Egyptians come looking for them? Remember, in verse 20, Joseph warned them, if they didn't bring Benjamin back, they would all die. No wonder they're afraid. This money also has to make them look very guilty to Jacob. I'm sure Jacob hasn't forgotten that these same boys once colluded to kill all the men of Shechem. These boys are capable of anything. So I'm sure Jacob has to be wondering whether they sold Simeon to get the money, or whether they just stole it. In verse 37, Reuben says that if he can just bring Benjamin down to Egypt, he will be able to settle the whole mess and bring both Benjamin and Simeon back home. In fact, Reuben tells Jacob that if he fails, Jacob can kill his two sons. Yeah, right. Like Jacob's going to murder his own grandchildren. What good would that do? It certainly wouldn't bring Benjamin or Simeon back. So in verse 38, Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. Now think about that. Jacob is face to face with his 11 sons and says that Benjamin is the only son left. How cold-hearted can you be? But you know, there are people today just like Jacob. They lose a child, whether from accident or foul play, and their grief focuses so strongly and single-mindedly on that one child that they completely ignore and turn away from the rest of their family. Anyway, the big point in this chapter, and in all the chapters on Joseph, 
is to show how it is that Israel ended up in captivity in Egypt. And that paves the way for their exodus from Egypt. The exodus, of course, is a major theme in the rest of the Bible. So this story of Joseph is preparing us for the next season in this mini-series, which is the book of Exodus. Another big idea that this chapter is, is preparing us for the leadership of Judah. Judah has been a scumbag whose life has turned around. In contrast to Reuben, who says, if I don't bring Simeon back, you can take it out on my kids. We'll see in the next chapter that Judah says, in effect, if I don't bring Simeon back, the buck stops with me. You can hold me guilty for the rest of my life. Judah has changed. It will be Judah, the fourthborn, who takes leadership in this family, not his older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, or Levi. That leadership will be developed in coming weeks. It will lead up to the prophecy that the Messiah will ultimately come from Judah. So what practical lessons can we learn from this passage? My first application has to do with discernment. We find in this passage that Joseph doesn't trust his brothers. They claim to be honest, but that's not how Joseph remembers them. These are the guys who colluded together to slaughter all the men of Shechem. They made Joseph's life miserable and then sold him into slavery. And they certainly weren't honest with their dad about what they did with Joseph. Joseph is not gullible. He uses discernment and tests them. The Bible teaches us to use discernment as well. In 1 Timothy 3.10, Paul tells Timothy that the deacons he appoints must first be tested before appointing them as deacons. This means we need to use discernment when selecting deacons. They need to have a track record of faithfulness to the Lord. In 1 John 4, John teaches that we are to test or use discernment regarding those who claim to be prophets, because many false prophets have come into the world. In Matthew 7, Jesus teaches that we are to judge people by the fruit of their lives. That involves discernment. There are way too many Christians who just accept what they see on the news, or read on the internet, or what some TV preacher says, or even what their own pastor says, without actually thinking about it and comparing it to the Word of God. But to do that, you need to know, you need to get to know your Bible well enough so you can evaluate what is being taught to you, not only in church or school, but also in the secular media. By the way, I don't think Moses wrote this story to teach us to use discernment. What I'm saying is that the importance of discernment is taught repeatedly in the New Testament. And I think this story in Genesis 42 is a good practical illustration of that principle. The same thing goes for the second application, which is about tough love. Moses didn't write this story to teach us about tough love, but the Joseph story is a good illustration of the principle of tough love. As we saw, Joseph was not hateful or vindictive, but he did use tough love to test his brothers. He spoke harshly to them. He threatened them. He tested their honesty and even put them in prison for three days. Sometimes love has to be tough. When applied to interpersonal relationships, it takes a lot of wisdom to know when tough love is required. For example, most often, we just need to do as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 2, and quote, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient 
bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love means putting up with each other. It means we don't make mountains out of every molehill or personality conflict. It's an attitude that says, oh, that's just the way Herman is. We just love him anyway. But there are cases where confrontation and tough love are necessary. Just one example would be when a church member is involved in sinful behavior that violates the church covenant. In such cases, confrontation and tough love are both necessary and biblical. Niceness and love are not always the same thing. When tough love is applied to parenting, it is not tough or is not love at all to defend kids when they do wrong or to give endless warnings and never discipline. Boundaries and discipline may sometimes be tough, but kids need boundaries and discipline. Always in love, of course. But sometimes love has to be tough, as with Joseph and his brothers. And by the way, I'm just making general observations. I'm not directing this to anyone in this church. There are no perfect kids, just, to, just like there are no perfect parents. But as far as I can tell, the families in our church do a very good job of raising kids. And I commend you for that. Let's pray. Lord, help us to use discernment and evaluate everything we're taught by the standard of your word. Grant us the wisdom to know when to bear with each other and when tough love is required. And Lord, help us to be like Joseph in forgiving and not holding grudges against those who have wronged us. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.